Providence, a new understanding. Hello, my name is Stephen Russell Lacey. This is the final podcast of a series exploring spiritual questions concerning suffering and why life is so unfair. One of the great questions of life. I've previously concluded that selfishness causes suffering, which nevertheless can serve a use. Suffering is balanced by providential life force. Now I ask more about this new understanding. Yes, we are bewildered and indignant at the widespread extent of apparently arbitrary and undeserved suffering in the world. And many ask the reason why the universal power of love and justice doesn't stop suffering. There are several traditional answers to this theodicy problem of why a powerful loving deity does not stop innocent suffering. And this question if unanswered, can be an important stumbling block to religious faith. The traditional doctrines, however, don't seem to provide satisfactory answers. The doctrine about God's providence, however, in the writings of Swedenborg, are now illuminating this matter. The idea is that human self-centeredness, being the cause of greed, exploitation and hatred, is the basic cause of suffering in the world. Providence counterbalances this with inspiration for what is good. The power of love is not in controlling us, but in its effectiveness. We can freely choose the way of kindness, thoughtfulness and good sense, or we can choose the way of selfishness. The individual can make their own choices in life and be what they wish. All this can be seen more in focus when we look at traditional doctrines. For example, the issue of whether God really is uninvolved in the world. Scholar Robert Kirvin points out that one old religious doctrine called deism likens the world to a watch made by a perfect watchmaker. It tended to regard God as being in a kind of exalted retirement watching the workings of his watch, which no longer needed his interference or even his detailed attention. Kirvin wrote, People wanting to know how the watch works, or even how to adjust it for their own purposes, should learn science, or trust the scientists, rather than praying for providence to a semi-retired god who is getting a little old to hear well anyway. He points out, in contrast, the Swedenborgian concept of the divine holds that the source of love is continually active in the details of our lives. This kind of providence provides us with fortunate coincidences, with spiritual healing, with inspiration, with compassion. In other words, divine providence counterbalances what is bad with what is good. It's just that we don't see it working at the time. If we were to do so, we would soon take it for granted. A college professor once posed this scenario to a class. 
A certain man had syphilis. His wife had tuberculosis. Of their four children, one died and an incurable illness afflicted the other three. The doctors said it was terminal. The mother is pregnant. What should she do? Most of the students don't hesitate to say she should have an abortion. Well, said the professor, you just killed Beethoven. The concept of a hidden providence fully active in the world may be hard to accept when we view things from a worldly perspective. This is especially true when the suffering of disease is deadly and we see no triumph beyond the grace and dignity of the human spirit. Second old idea was that everything really is in the loving hands of God. Well, this is a bit misleading. Basically, it is actually true, but not in the way many people think of it. Imagine having grown up complacently believing that God would never allow anything bad to happen to you because God loves you and looks after you. But then encounters with a difficult side of life challenge this immature belief that God will take care of everything nicely. Inevitably, something goes wrong which confronts such a faith. Some believers may react by turning a blind eye to suffering around them. Eventually, however, they have to notice not only their own problems, but what everyone else can see in plain sight about the affliction of others. If we cling to an image of God as a sort of cosmic Santa Claus, then faith cannot deepen or mature we will likely come to the startling realisation that God is not who we thought he was. Do we then reject God or allow our conception of who he is to change? This can be a painful process. If you are familiar with the Bible, you may be interested to know that expecting things to be as we want them to be does not fit in with his message. When we catch ourselves demanding that life treats us fairly, we might remember Jesus' unjust suffering on the cross. This memory can contail our attitude of entitlement. The Swedenborgian view, then, is that providence offers us all we need for our spiritual welfare, as long as we learn from the trials of life how to accept it, of course. God does not enforce what he wants for us. Instead, he encourages us to take responsibility for our wrongdoings and try to be a better person. God cannot rid us of our selfish faults without our help. Swedenborg wrote, In all Christian churches, the accepted teaching is that before we come to take Holy Communion, we should examine ourselves, see and admit our sins, and repent by refraining from them and rejecting them. Faith apart from repentance is not really faith. We do the work of repentance so that providence can provide spiritual growth. It can provide enlightenment. It can provide everlasting happiness. For the Old Testament figure of Job, having to suffer his pitiable state covered with boils was a huge challenge to his sublime faith in love and justice. Job concluded that justice would only take place eventually in some life beyond death. Likewise, Swedenborgian writer Bruce Henderson 
has suggested that when someone ravaged by a disease is dying, we tend to think that with death he or she at least will finally be free from pain and will find peace. Also that little children who die automatically go to a better place. In addition, we also like to believe that the aged and infirm, who often have all kinds of physical and mental issues, will be made whole again and live normal lives in a heavenly life after death. That is because we have a perception, if not yet a confident faith, that God's kingdom is beyond all the trials of this world. And in line with this outlook is Swedenborg's inner mystical experiences. These he reports, for example, in, in his book, Heaven and Hell. People who die tragically, due to external causes, not of their own making, later awaken in the other world to a sphere of love and peace, with no memory of fear, violence, pain or terror. A man asked some religious people about suffering and was told, It's God's will. The man angrily replied, What possible good could come from making my wife so sick and killing my child? They said, Well, you don't always understand the plan. He said, I'm sorry, but there is no ultimate plan to justify this. Hitler had a plan. One view is that there is nothing that happens on this earth unless it is God's will. But when we think about these words, we soon realise that they are mistaken. Are we really saying that murder, war, crimes, atrocities, famine, disease are all God's will? Swedenborg's view is that the selfishness of human beings with its resulting suffering is not what God desires. To describe a disease or natural disaster as an act of God reflects our desire to find some intention behind it. Who are we going to blame? We feel we can't blame government or society, not for a volcanic eruption, surely. So we blame God. An alternative view is that God does not create natural disasters. They occur because the outer world of nature mirrors the general state of the human spirit. Now, this general state is a mixture of good and bad, of altruism and selfishness, of virtue and of vice. So we get a mixture of storms and calm, volcano and times of non-eruption, drought and needing rain. The alchemist said, as above, so below, as below, so above. Which means that there is always a correspondence between the laws and phenomena of the various planes of being and life. You may be wondering whether suffering is really due to God's punishment of the individual. Those who believe in reincarnation assume that people who suffer terrible misfortune do so because of what they did in their past lives. And so they suggest that sins committed by them in a former life cause a disability in this one. Critics point out that this is being unbelievably insensitive and hurtful. The idea of sin sounds judgmental and, to use the term, is blaming victims of disease for their suffering. Glenn Hoddle lost his job as England football team manager because of this issue. 
Likewise, some Western world religious people still say about suffering that God meters out punishment for one's sins. But critics see this as a condemnation of those judged to be behaving badly. Some religious believers consider the Old Testament figure Job to be a prophet giving a divine message. Theologian William Neal points out that when the story was written, people then believed that one's wrongdoing caused personal misfortune. They thought this whether the individual admitted or concealed their conduct. People also thought a virtuous life deserved material prosperity. Some people think that providence is apparently arbitrary, that we don't always get our seemingly just deserts. A drunken driver or a badly maintained aircraft can be the sole cause of mayhem to innocent passengers. Why should they deserve to suffer? Likewise, Job noticed criminals who get off scot-free and the wicked who do not perish. They actually often prospered and grew fat. God did not strike them down. They died in comfort in their beds. Job didn't believe he deserved the boils he was smitten with from head to foot, so he dared to question whether there is any moral order in the universe at all. The more he thought of it, the prosperity of the undeserving baffled him, as did his own misfortune. Yet at heart, he still assumed that the government of the universe was in wise hands. Similarly, today, many don't know whether to rail against God for causing their misery or turn to him for help in prayer. Researchers found that someone's poor mental health connects with seeing troubles as God's punishment. Studies have reported this finding several times. Perhaps this is not surprising, for after all, how could anyone put their trust and hope in such an unloving higher power? If the God of love and wisdom has compassion for all, then there is no desire to see anyone hurt, even those who engage in wicked acts. We may recall the New Testament stories of the shepherd looking for the lost sheep to return them to the fold, and the father who celebrates the return of the prodigal son who has squandered his money. So according to this way of thinking, when we do suffer, there is no divine punishment. Instead, we can be accepted back into the fold and receive mercy when we are spiritually lost or bring problems on ourselves. In line with this, Swedenborg maintains that God wills no one to suffer. God punishes no one. It is good that brings its own reward and selfishness its own penalty. Swedenborg wrote, Anyone, in the next life, who does good to another, with all his heart, receives good in like measure. And therefore one who does evil to another with all his heart receives evil in like measure. For good done with all one's heart carries its own reward together with it, and evil done with all one's heart carries its own punishment together with it. Now, okay, you might be wondering whether mankind as a whole really deserves God's punishment. There is a belief in original sin. For example, there is a view that the current COVID pandemic is a curse on us all, which firmly suggests the punitive concept of judgmental deity. 
And in line with this attitude is the Christian view we sometimes hear that suffering is present because the first humans broke the divine-human relationship. This doctrine maintains that the biblical story of Adam and Eve's expulsion from paradise explains our suffering. Due to this so-called original sin, somehow we are all due to be punished, as if we were all guilty of being rotten to the core. One implication of this is that even an innocent baby deserves to be born with disease or deformity. And of course, quite rightly, critics comment that this view is indeed one of a cruel deity. Others have thought that Christ's suffering on the cross has taken the place of our punishment. So it seems God needs appeasing, according to their view. A belief in a vindictive side of deity is shown by trickster gods found in polytheistic belief systems and by the literal meaning of descriptions of God in the Old Testament as vengeful and angry. However, according to Swinburne's theology, the suffering of Christ was not to placate any vengeful deity, as some have believed. People made the mistake of assuming that Christ took upon himself a punishment due to mankind. How could it be true? For that orthodox image of deity is one that mixes bad with good, revenge with mercy, vice with virtue. An alternative view is that God's anger is only an appearance to suit the limited comprehension of the readers of the Old Testament. Likewise, the anger of a loving parent is only surface deep. It is expressed because of the desire to zealously protect the child who wanders into danger. A very different understanding of the fall is to say over history, the divine-human relationship has become damaged. People have fallen for the illusion that one needs to rely on oneself and one's bodily senses rather than look fully to the higher spirit of consciousness. As a result, over many generations, there's been an accumulated tendency in humanity towards pride, towards corruption of true principles, towards greed for resources needed by others, so much so that today we are living in a self-centered and materialistic culture, albeit mixed in with some naturally good tendencies. Yet it would be very unfair to say that the individual today is guilty and should suffer because of any past misbehavior of his or her ancestors. Likewise, it is unreasonable to blame the individual for their cultural background. After all, a court of law would not condemn anyone for being born into a criminal family, but would rather listen to the evidence regarding his actual conduct with an open mind. So according to Swinburne's framework of ideas, a wise spirit of love is constantly active in the minds of people. We can choose whether or not to be empowered by it. The presence of love and light can be thought of as the Lord God, who does not want humanity to suffer. And so this divine providence seeks to counterbalance the forces of selfishness, which are the causes of suffering. Swinburne maintained that we attract selfish thoughts because of our inherited self-centered tendencies self-centered tendencies which are mixed up with naturally good tendencies as well. 
The Lord does not wish to magically change our character. Instead, the divine being wants us to exercise our freedom to follow the divine path towards inner well-being. The Lord does not punish anyone for their misdeeds. We bring punishment upon ourselves as the natural consequences of our greed, envy, envy and malevolence. There is no way we could be led out of this inclination to put self first in all things if the power behind the universe constantly prevented our selfish thoughts and intentions. For this reason, selfish tendencies in this life result in suffering of innocent people. Talking of suffering, many people cannot understand why Christ allowed himself to be crucified. Is one reason that goodness must show itself to be greater than the power of hate? It is easy to be good when there is no suffering and hatred present, but can goodness continue when everyone is despising you and killing you? The authorities in Judea cruelly killed Jesus Christ. The reason is that those in great selfishness could not abide by the good life that he lived and the ideas that he taught. These teachings were completely foreign to the proud, self-righteous, hypocritical life of the Pharisees. When the soldiers had driven nails into his hands and feet and hoisted him upon a large wooden cross, Jesus even said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did not return evil for evil, as perhaps we would have done. He did not retaliate, and so he was faithful to his own teaching. Love your enemies. In Jesus Christ, it was the power of the creative spirit of love and light that came into the world to meet hate on its own ground, one where the natural selfish desires of people could inflict pain and bodily death, but could not extinguish the power of love itself.